I'm Roberto, engineer turned PGA Tour player turned businessman. And I'm Dan, businessman on the weekdays and average golfer on the weekends. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest people in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This week on the Course Record Show, we continue our series on direct-to-consumer golf brands. Dan talks to Brad Payne, founder and CEO of Walker Trolleys, a two-year-old company that sells high-end push carts. Enjoy the conversation. Dan and I will follow up with takeaways after the interview. And for those of you interested in your own Walker Trolley, use discount code COURSERECORD20, that's COURSERECORD20, to get $20 off your purchase. Enjoy. I'm Brad Payne, CEO of Walker Trolleys. We are a golf pushcart company, and we founded the company really about improving the experience of using a golf pushcart on the course rather than in the corner of your garage. We make uh, a pushcart that is different than everything else on the market. Um, it's aesthetically designed superior, and it's and it's kind of a throwback to something that would be on the golf course in the 1920s, 1930s, you know, kind of the golden age of golf. We use leather, we use wax canvas, um, aluminum to make a very light and easy to use push cart, but also one that, that stands out on the golf course. When did you start the company and what made that time a good time to go into DTC? Yeah, so we started the company about three and a half years ago. We only started selling push carts about a year and a half ago. There's a lot of design work and, and company building that goes into it beforehand. But really the reason why we started the company in the first place was that we felt that a lot of the push carts in the market were very similar. They were all kind of after that one, one thing, which is the, the smallest folding push cart in the market. And so we thought we could be different and really focusing on the on-course experience um, getting you to fall in love with using your push cart where you're actually out on the golf course. And so we felt like a direct-to-consumer company. And, and I think that's also fair that in this industry that a lot of our competitors sell specifically in, you know, big box retail, they sell in PGA Superstore and Dick's and things like that. And we felt that we could be that kind of direct-to-consumer brand within the space. A lot has changed over the past, you know, 10, 15 years when it comes to direct consumer, you know, starting a direct consumer company 15 years ago would mostly involve, you know, TV ads and things like that to reach a broad market where, you know, there's a pretty large capital startup component to, to being able to run on TV. Um, and we felt that, you know, through the use of social media, specifically Instagram, um, Twitter to grow a following. And then once you actually have a product relying more on Instagram ads, Google SEO and things like that to actually reach customers like that, that was possible in today's day and age where that certainly wasn't possible, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Do you think DTC and DTC and golf in particular could even exist without digital marketing? I don't. I think email marketing obviously is an alternative, but to be able to actually grow the list, to have somebody to send an email to is really the challenge in that. And I think that's really where social media 
comes into play. You know, Instagram, I think in particular, especially when you have a product company like ours, being able to show off the product, being able to, especially now with video and things like that, where you can actually show the product being used, that content creation and being able to kind of build a brand around that on Instagram is really taken off over the last, you know, five, six years, or that certainly wasn't the case, you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago. I think Facebook kind of to a lesser extent, just we've, we've kind of personally focused more on Instagram and Twitter. There is a large community of golfers on golf Twitter. And I think kind of once you can get into that and, and you're a part of that community, Twitter can be a really good vehicle too for, for getting your brand out there and growing your brand. So it sounds like you've used many marketing channels. How do you look at your mix holistically? Like how do you compare different channels to one another versus their strategy? How do you kind of make sense of all that together? Yeah, I think we think of them as, as different vehicles for kind of telling your brand story. I think in the beginning, Instagram was a really great place to show the product. It's a good place to kind of show the brand ideal and, and what you want the brand to be. Twitter is much more of a kind of vehicle, I think, for reaching a large number of people in a very passive manner. You know, people can see your tweets. They don't necessarily always respond. You know, you can put sales up there and, and reach a pretty large audience. I think Instagram, what we've seen, especially with changes in kind of the way the algorithm has worked over the past few years, it's a little less reliable when it comes to kind of reaching a large audience. I mean, they've really focused on paid advertisements and things like that. Whereas reaching people kind of just holistically was really the, the way that Instagram started and discovery and, and brands. And I would say it's kind of moved a little bit away from that, at least in our experience. And then Google SEO is, we think about as kind of that, that last mile. That's, that's where people are searching for you. They know about you already, and now they're going to purchase. And you want to make sure that you're in shopping and that you're at the top of the search results. So you can really actually kind of drive that last that last sale and that conversion. And then we think about email is people are already invested in us, whether they're current customers or they're probably on the verge of being next customers. And that and that's really a place where we see high conversion rates and we actually, you know, expect to make those sales and we're making secondary sales and things like that. So email's definitely one of our, our biggest areas. Very interesting. So with that in mind, how do you how do you compare the economics of different channels? Like do you expect different targets for different parts of the funnel or do you kind of take yeah. a, everyone compete on Apple's <clears throat> basis? How do you harmonize your, your return? Yeah, we really look at, at, at kind of things at a, a pretty macro level. I know you can kind of really get into the weeds, but we've been selling the product now for two years and we found that revenue per website visitor holds pretty steady from us from month to month. So for us, when you think about it that way, it really makes it simple that you're just trying to drive as many golfers and people that are in your that are interested in your category to your website in any given time. And we've really seen that that has been the case that, the, that within a pretty narrow band, even if we have a slow month, you know, we're kind of off season like right now is January is always our slowest month of the year. We still see, you know, it's roughly kind of four seventy-five, five dollars per per visitor. We see the site over over kind of the long term, and so it's really what we think about is just driving traffic to the website, and then 
we'll be able to monetize that traffic when it gets to our website. And so when we think about kind of the social media aspects, we think about, you know, what can we, what do we have that's interesting that we can put up on Twitter or Instagram that would make people want to click to the site, whether it's a sale, whether it's a new product, whether it's some other kind of content, you know, we're, we're still kind of a small shop, so we're not <laughs> out there doing things like, you know, that the content creator guys are doing, but it's really about how can we use kind of social media to drive that top end funnel and get people to the website, especially reaching new people that maybe haven't been to the website, but we see that that's really our biggest metric when it comes to the web and, and social media. Okay. You sound, you sound like you, you take a very performance focused approach to your channel and your marketing. Is that a fair statement? I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't think that we have the, you know, we obviously don't have the resources to do the analytics of like a TaylorMade or, or some billion dollar company, but I think we certainly, we certainly look at it from an analytical perspective for sure. You think about like brand metrics, like raising awareness and consideration, does that play a role in this or is that um, not the focus right now? No, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the focus. I think for us, it's, it's really blocking and tackling to try and get the scale. And I think, you know, it's difficult for us as a smaller company, I think, to measure the brand awareness, especially when we don't do advertising. We don't really pay for much advertising outside of Google SEO. So if we had, you know, multiple paid channels, then I think we would probably look, we would certainly look at that more closely. But I think when you're not doing TV and you're not doing radio and you're not doing necessarily podcasts, you're not necessarily paying on Instagram. Sometimes you do. And then you're not using kind of Twitter as a paid advertiser. I think you're really looking at kind of the, the cost per acquisition on SEO and then looking at other kind of hard metrics that you can measure that directly impact kind of traffic to your site. Got it. So we talked a lot about the marketing side and the demand and it sort of as the, the, the demand generation side. Stepping back, what's the biggest, what keeps you up the most at night? Is it the demand side, like what we're talking about, or is it supply side? <laughs> Both keep me up at night. I think for different reasons. I think the demand side, we think about a lot and driving traffic. And a lot of it can be very seasonal. And a lot of it is product driven. You know, if we're coming out with a new version of the trolley, or we've got new kind of head covers, or we, and we have those milestones that we, you know, on our, on our product roadmap. Um, we know when those things are going to come. So, I mean, you always worry about in any kind of business, are we going to make another sale or, we, you know, is this the year that things are going to go down? I think, especially for us, when, when we started a push cart company and we launched during COVID, it was always kind of like, well, is this just fortuitous timing? And then next year is going to be kind of more down or is it going to be up? And we were wondering what 21 to 21 was going to be like, and it, and it turned out to be really good. So we were, we were very encouraged by that. But I think from the supply side, that's kind of a whole nother animal. And I think, especially for, for any product company, and I, and I don't think necessarily it's much different than for direct to consumer or green grass or, you know, wholesalers or anything else. But I think what we've experienced over the past, you know, 12 months, especially just with the supply chain shocks, trying to manufacture things in China and Asia in general, the tariffs and transportation costs. I mean, for us, for instance, we had a shipment that was coming in in October of this year that was basically our Christmas supply and, and our kind of Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And 
you know, it sat on a boat for 45 extra days getting over here. It's something that should take 30 days or so end to end. And it ended up taking 80 days. And it's just like, and, oh yeah. And it also costs three X the price that it did 12 months ago. So it's just things like that, the kind of supply shocks that you read about on the paper, you know, in, on TV or read about the paper, you know, they're real. And there are certainly companies out there like ours and, and many others that are facing those kind of uncertainties. So I think, so I, I don't mean to kind of dance around to say demand or supply, but I would say each, especially in this environment has its own challenges. So that's an area where we get that massively delayed shipment that was super expensive. What hurts you more, the cost or the time? In this instance, it would probably be more of the cost. I think the time, the timing for us was particularly bad just because it was trying to get everything out for Christmas. A lot of people are buying Black Friday, Cyber Monday deals for Christmas presents. Uh, but I think kind of going forward, especially into 2022, is what you see is that you're going to see some margin compression on that new inventory that's come across just because you've seen the cost increases and you realize that the next shipment and that inventory kind of going forward is going to be lower margin and you're going to have to make up for it, whether it's in kind of SG&A costs, you know, other OPEX, kind of tightening the belt there to, to be able to maintain whatever profit and cash flow that you had prior. So you mentioned the, the margin compression and some of the delays and the systemic issues. What are the sort of the viable levers you have to de-risk from those things? Like, do you have any plays there? I think in the short term, we don't have a lot of plays. I think in the long term, we certainly have other options and we're always looking to better those, whether it comes to switching manufacturer. I mean, none of them are easy and none of them are quick switches, whether it's switching manufacturers to try and find a more competitive market, more competitive supplier that's free of tariffs. That's one option, finding a manufacturer that can do the same job that your existing manufacturer could do, but maybe for less. You know, we looked at those. We've looked at ways that we can decrease domestic shipping costs, which are also increasing five to 7% a year. And we're talking about like the UPSs and the FedExs. And so what ways can we save money by kind of consolidating and, and better, you know, better holding our inventory? Where are we holding inventory and things like that to, to more optimize the supply chain? I think, you know, originally we, and this kind of gets back to the whole, is directing to consumer an easier business now than it was 15 years ago, but you know, 15 years ago, you didn't have the third-party fulfillment companies that you do now, the, the ship bobs and people like that, that will basically hold inventory for you, fulfill your orders, ship them out all for kind of one discounted price, then you can generally do it with on your own with UPS. And I think what we've seen is these guys are even starting now to see cost increases that are making it difficult on companies like us. And we're in probably a little bit different of a of a position than a lot of other companies in that we have a larger product that is relatively heavy, kind of similar to a golf bag. A lot of the U.S. shipping is based on kind of a volume weight where it's not necessarily that it's heavy or anything like that. It's just kind of what is the size of the package? And that's kind of how it, it, it's called dimensional weight. But so if you have a large package like a golf bag, even though it doesn't necessarily weigh that much, it certainly costs a whole lot more ship than something that weighs more and is relatively small. And so we're thinking now about how we can kind of move away from some of these guys and how we can optimize the supply chain 
to reduce our shipping cost to the end consumer overall. If Walker trolleys were a hundred times bigger than it is today, yep. you know, I'd have, I know you have a big smile on your face if that came true. <laughs> that would be nice. What problems go away? What problems get worse? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about it because because as a niche kind of golf business, I don't see us ever being hundred times bigger than we are now. I'm thinking big for you, Brad. I'm thinking- I, I know, I know. I love it. And I haven't really ever thought about myself as a CEO of a company that's doing, you know, X, X tens of millions in revenue. I think for us specifically, problems that would go away. From a supply chain perspective, we would have a lot more control over our supply chain. And I think, and we would have vendors that we had been doing business with for a long time. And I think we would have a much more established product development and supply chain history that we could rely on. So, and what I mean by that is you think about a company like Apple that's been manufacturing iPhones now for 15 years and they're very entrenched with Foxconn. They know that they're coming out with a new iPhone every year in September and the product development and the way that they do that is always kind of very process oriented. They know the cost. They know there's a lot of certainty around everything that they're going to do and thus the profit margin and and the retail price are all very similar. And I think for us, that is something is to be able to optimize that manufacturing process and to get to the cost, uh, the unit cost that we feel um, we can really grow grow the business with. I think the other, I, and, and then I think also the, the brand recognition that you would have, the awareness that you would have across the golf community, I think all of those things would be assets that you could, that would be valuable going forward. I think the, the things that would be difficult, more difficult than now, I think would be to think about how you can be more nimble, how you can pivot more quickly, product development and, and innovating on the existing products that you have. That's something that is always difficult to do, um, especially once you've come out with a product is how do you innovate? How do you make it better? How do you continue? I think you see that with a company like Apple, you know, with the iPhone, it's 15 years old now. There's not a whole lot you can do besides better battery life, better camera, you know, a stronger CPU. And, and kind of that's really where they're at is that, you know, the functions that they have now are very minorly incremental compared to the things they were coming up with, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Are you at this point hundred percent DTC or do you have, have other sort of channels that you manage still? So the way that we think about the business right now is we're, we started as a hundred percent direct consumer business and we never wanted to be reliant on big box retail. We, we felt kind of similar to a lot of other brands that, that we provide something that's very unique. And in this day and age, we can reach consumers directly and that the margin that big box retail and others take is not necessarily equated to the value that they bring. And we always do want to be direct to the consumer first and foremost. However, I will say that there are a lot of advantages to being able to run a direct consumer as well as kind of a green grass wholesale business as well, especially when it comes to push carts. There's a lot of clubs out there that, that have push cart fleets that allow their members to walk that don't necessarily allow outside push carts. And I think that is a very big part of our specific industry and our specific product category that we will look forward to expanding in, in the future. And I think there's a lot of advantages 
with that product category specifically when it comes to exposure, brand awareness. For instance, if you are the push cart company for Pinehurst Resorts and people are using your push cart or your trolley on Pinehurst number two, and they're having an absolute wonderful time and they love using your push cart on Pinehurst number two, then that's a customer that you don't necessarily have to reach outside of that through social media marketing, or you already have brand awareness with that consumer. And that can be a much easier conversion down the line. If they happen to see your ad on Instagram, they're like, oh yeah, I, I remember that push card. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking for a push card. That'd be great. And so I think both of them can be very complimentary. And I think that's where we want to get to in the next couple of years um, is building that wholesale business along with the direct consumer business to build that fleet sale and for those reasons. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I mean, that's how I got the only times I used a push cart before I bought the, the one from Walker Trolleys was, I think it was at Sand Valley and Stream Song. And like, you have to walk, right? I'm playing 36 a day. I'm not going to carry my bag. No. It's like, oh, like push cart actually was kind of fun. It was kind of, like, kind of great. Like, I might want to do this for my own club. So I think you're right. It's, it's a very, some of those places are maybe a good, very entry level, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very rudimentary, kind of entry level, durable. I mean, it's almost like taking a wheelbarrow. Yeah. Yeah. The, the cards that was great. Like experience, yeah. yeah. Like the experience of taking one. I was like, oh yeah, like this isn't, this is, this is good. Like if I get a good one, then maybe what do you yeah. better, Right. Yeah. Uh, so. And I think that's where we want to get to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What about, have you considered, or maybe you already did this already sales through pro shops through green grass? We do not. We've had some clubs and, and this is something to that we've kind of thought about, you know, a way for people to turn pro shop credit into purchases. Like a lot of people have, have, have clubs have reached out and said, Hey, I've got Joe here. He made a hole in one and he has $500 in pro shop credit. You know, could we buy a push card from you and let him use his shop credit for it? And, you know, we say, absolutely. I think that's an interesting aspect. Greengrass accounts specifically, you know, it's a great place to buy merchandise, great place to buy clubs just because of the relationships and the amount of things that, you know, a Titleist or a Callaway or a, a TaylorMade has with the relationships with pros. But I think for our specific product category, it's, it's a little bit different. There's not a ton of clubs that are going to put a walker trolley in their pro shop. They're generally small, a lot, you know, trying to maximize floor space for, for merchandise and other kind of high margin things. So we're, we're, we're much more comfortable outside the golf shop. So the DC has been a boom within golf and beyond, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I know you're bullish on it or you wouldn't be doing it this way, <laughs> but what would have to change for DTC to sort of flatten out or, or sort of lose some of the momentum it's had? What are some of the things that you would look at as like for, either indicators or patterns or things like that, that would make you kind of maybe want to pivot. Yeah. Transportation costs is definitely one, especially for us, you know, at some point, you know, customers, customers are very used to paying free shipping with Amazon. And I think it's, it's, it can be difficult as a smaller direct to consumer brand to be able to compete with that. And I think that's certainly an area where companies like us could struggle in the future. And I think it makes it a little bit harder to do the direct consumer business when you're selling things like, you know, golf shirts and sweaters and things like that. You don't quite 
see the large variation in shipping costs that you do kind of with larger bulky items, but they're still coming and they're, and they're still difficult from a kind of margin perspective, competing with somebody like an Amazon, that's a $2 trillion company. Oh, and on a more humorous note, what's it going to take to see one of your trolleys in the PGA tour? They have a specific rule that says that caddies cannot use trolleys, but I will say we did have a, a pro in second round of, of Corn Ferry Q school this year that was using a Walker trolley. And so maybe in the future, we maybe, I think we're focused on, we would love to have some Walker trolleys in the NCAA championship, whether it's on the male side or the female side. I, I think it, push carts are a little more popular with, with the NCAA women. And I would love to have an entire team that wins a national title have Walker trolley push carts or Walker trolleys. That would be fantastic. Much more likely to see it there than you ever will on the PGA tour. But um, I think the Scheffler, Scotty Scheffler, I think I saw him with the push car. I never heard of him at the time because he was in college, but I want to say, I mean, I don't know if it was a Walker trolley. I think it may have been before you guys were, were selling. Yeah, but, it was well before. I, no, it, it, it's funny every year that the NCAA championship comes up that, you know, you'll see people using trolleys or push carts out on the course. And of course, some PGA Tour pro chimes up and says, you know, that's stupid. That's, you know, they should be carrying their bag, whatever, you know, shouldn't be using push cart. And, and I think every year the push cart mafia pushes back even harder and tells people how dumb of a take that is. And that it saves your back. It's easier. You can carry way more weight. You can carry more water. You can carry more snacks. You can carry umbrella, more golf balls efficiently and easily using a push cart than you can carrying it on your back. And, and alcoholic beverages. Exactly. I mean, like, I'm not going to go out and walk a golf course with a, with a bag on my back with a six pack of beer in my bag and, and drink six beers. That's, that's not going to happen, but pushing. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Dan, insightful conversation with Brad. I thought he was open and honest about his business, which I can really appreciate. Let's give the listener a little bit of info. The Walker Trolley sells for about $375. They ship at a flat rate anywhere in the continental U.S. for $45. And of their 185 reviews, 95% of them were five-star. So people really love the product. First, I'm going to ask you an icebreaker. When you play golf, do you ride in a cart? Do you carry your bag? Do you push a push cart? 70% carry, 20% push cart. And then 10% cart. 10%. Why do you carry? Is your course too hilly for a push car? Or do you just like the old school style? Well, it's funny. It is hilly. I started using a push cart at my club. Then I thought they were charging me for it. Didn't see that coming. And I said, hey, let me go back to carrying for a little bit. Realized I really missed the push cart. I <laughs> invested my own. Why, why pay the club when I can buy something nicer than they got? and feel good about it. So that's what how I ended up being a Walker Trolley's customer. What kind of price are we talking with your club dinging you for, for a push cart? It wasn't that bad. It really wasn't that bad. Just the idea of uh, how quickly would I get my payback on buying my own and having it for myself felt good. That's industrial engineer brain right there working. All right, moving push. to the conversation. I mentioned already that Brad was open and honest, and I, I thought it was telling that he doesn't see himself running a $100 million business. And I think in any endeavor, defining what success is, is important. 
And he seems to have done that, which is very cool. And he's open about it. What did you think of that? I think it was very consistent with what I saw as his core competency, which is product quality. I think if you start getting too far ahead of the big numbers, it's very easy to lose sight of what got you successful to get going and establishing product market fit. So I saw a tremendous alignment between his mindset and what his company is really, really good at. So now could that change? Could he still scale to being a really big company? Sure. But, but I think he's very disciplined in the fact that what matters right now isn't mega scale. It's investing in quality one customer at a time and growing that way. So I, I saw that as very, very consistent from Brad. Yeah. And the lifestyle brand is a word or phrase that cuts two ways. He has a lifestyle brand and that he's targeting golfers and the golf lifestyle. But if you build a lifestyle company that generates good cash flow, you don't need to build a hundred million dollar business. You can have a great quality of life, have something that's your own. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. There's absolutely no shame in that. I mean, who knows what his investors are expecting? I know he's got some, but so long as that works out for everyone involved, I think it's a great model to be in, great place to be in. Yeah. All right. Let's jump to the digital marketing. This is your area of expertise, retail and digital marketing. What did you think of his approach? So I thought his approach was very disciplined. Once again, I'm using that word to describe Brad and Walker Trolleys. He seems to really be focused on squeezing the most out of very little right now. Right? He mentioned being very little paid media in digital. And if you ever, are you familiar with Andrew Chen, who's an investor at Andreessen Horowitz right now? Have you read his stuff? No, I have. So he's an ex-Uber guy and he's, he thinks he's found the right hacks for growth. And he's all about how do you build tight feedback loops, quick iterations, and turn very, very cheap things that return a uh, high volume of stuff before you have to go and pay the next dollar, then the next dollar, then the next dollar. So I saw his philosophies somewhat reflected in what Brad was talking about. I mean, Brad talking about what you really want is getting people through email and loyalty right. via email, but you got to acquire their email and that's got to come through different channels. So he... He's got a good sense of how to move the chains on people from, you know, no awareness into eventual purchasers and repeat right. purchasers. Uh, so I thought he had a really good feel for how he, how to do that in a very efficient way. Why did you wait until episode 16 of the Course Record Show to, to give me the Andrew Chen knowledge? Or why aren't we growing our listener base by this method? We are. You you just, been, have you we, been sitting on that? How long have you been sitting we, on that? We are. You just don't know it. Oh, this is your strategy. You just haven't verbalized it. Okay. Yeah, Good to know. Not, everything, not everything needs to be said. That's right. Okay. All right. So I thought your most interesting question was, are you more worried about supply or demand? And he said both. And the other interesting thing was he used Apple as an example of both. What would you be more worried about if you were the CEO of Walker Trolley, supply or demand? So Brad worked at Apple before he founded Walker Trolley. Okay. That's, so good that's, that's good intel. That's good intel. So he's, his bona fides with Apple are pretty well established, I would think. I would be sweating bullets on the supply side, not just with his business, but a lot of businesses. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you should be sweating every dollar spent. I get it. And in his, so his answer about sweating both is spot on. But the number of variables and the uniqueness of the time we live in affecting supply chain right now, this thing could go anywhere right now with supply chain, whereas the demand side is more or less predictable. So... I, I would be much more worried on the supply side. He's clearly got a really good grasp on unit economics, right? He was talking about margin compression, the levers he's got, uh, what he's trying to do with 
both on the, the on the international side with manufacturers and locations and shipping lanes as well as domestically. So he's he's put a lot of thought into what it takes to go there because you know when you're scaling a business, you ideally want your product cost to go down so your margin goes up because again back to the Andrew Chen stuff over time you have to pen, you have to spend more and more to acquire the next incremental customer. Right. So the only way you increase profitability is by really driving down that cost and seeing margins come up that way. So if that's not playing out for Walker Trolleys, that would be a very unique dynamic for where he is and his company is in their life cycle. So I think it's really interesting to be very focused on that right now. I would not have thought of it that way, but it makes total sense. The other thing that Walker Trolleys is an example of is that nobody actually manufactures anything, right? Like he makes the tech pack, the specs, and then he finds a factory in China to build it. And I think that's such a funny concept that people don't grasp. Like people think Nike makes t-shirts. They really don't. Like a dozen factories all over the world make t-shirts for all these companies and they're branded Nike. And the number of companies that like make something in-house in manufacturing facilities that they own, it's got to be 1% of of the products that are out there. And I, I think it's so easy to forget that. I forget it all the time, even though I know it. And just hearing him say better manufacturing, finding a better manufacturer, you would think his whole business is building Walker trolleys, but it's, it is and it isn't, right? It is and it isn't. I, I hear you that the, the old days of the Henry Ford's completely vertically, you know, integrated right. company, that's dead, right? Forget that. And there's gain from specialization to be had in all parts of the, the value chain there. Right. So, so you're right in that sense. But I mean, this isn't like a commodity product. It's a relatively complex product. True. High level of quality and craftsmanship involved. Yeah. When we talk about China, people used to offshore to China because it used to be cheaper. Now it's just better. I mean, now I mean, now you 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 really lose a lot by moving from somewhere like China to Philippines, just to pick an example, right? right. So even though wages have gone up and costs have gone up and logistics shipping costs have gone up from, from coming back from China, you know, it's they've really built a good powerhouse of building this stuff. So you really got to think about using why not China as a starting point, and going from there, especially for something as specialized as this. But your point's well taken, right? The the handoffs and how much you have to sweat the the product quality looks a lot different when you you're not rolling up your sleeves and building yourself. Right. All right, let's go back to the margin compression. I thought that was worth digging into. I would think his customer is very price insensitive. If you're going to buy a $375 push cart, you'll buy a $425 push cart. And that obviously has an upper bound. But I don't know how much time you've spent in luxury but am I right about that? Is, is it just a lot less price sensitive for his target customer or is everyone subconsciously as price sensitive up and down the, the food chain? Traditional economists would say the more you drive up the price of a product, the lower its demand is going to be that you can capture at that given price. Don't tell Scotty Cameron that. Well, don't tell a lot of, don't tell Walker Trolley's that. Right. Don't tell Peloton that. Right. right. If you've heard interviews with, with, John Foley, the, the now ex-CEO. Right, Peloton. Georgia Tech guy, must be so. Georgia Tech guy, yeah, and the rest pour one out for him. And uh, he would talk about pricing as like, hey, I want to signal the quality of this product by, by jacking it up. And he believed fundamentally, Peloton that is, that by driving the price up, they drove demand up. So there are cases where that the price and demand trade uh, curve totally inverts. Right. 
and, and luxury is really where we see this. So I think you're right that it's probably very insensitive at that point. Obviously, you can only push that so far, no pun intended. But the but the fact it is only goes so far. But the but you're right. I think it is an insensitive thing. I think it's a good signal of quality if you want to establish yourself over a category that's been very very commoditized. In my right. Opinion. And it's so there might be some wiggle room with margin compression to go back there again. But at the same time, Brad's and Brock, well, Brad's probably got some fixed costs he's got to oversee and he needs to scale up to, to overcome. So that's that's no reason to sort of deviate from that strategy. It's funny you mentioned Peloton because that popped into my head too. It's a similar to me product. It's a similar target customer, high level of discretionary income. Take the subscription part of it out if you can for a second. But, but there's an upper bound on how many people can afford a Peloton bike or a Walker trolley. So back to his point about building a $100 million business. I'm not sure that you could capture 100% of the market share and build a $100 million business on, on trolleys. And like Peloton, I mean, the COVID thing, you know, they were at 160 and now the stock's at 20. Well, maybe the stock should have always been at 20 because unless they expand to other categories, which is possible, the core $3,000 exercise bike, you just can't build a, the next Apple on that product alone. So I'm not shocked their stock price is down back to where it probably belongs. And I'm not shocked to hear Brad say immediately, like, it's not a $100 million business, guys, right? Yeah, I think the, the Peloton case is interesting because it's all about how much were home workouts going to stick, right? Right. As like a new way to work out, not a new way, but the, the predominant way to work out. So the pie would have to grow and Peloton would have to capture a disproportionate share of that to justify the price that we're seeing at its peak. Yeah. Now, bringing up to Walker trolleys, you're right. There is some aspect of, of all the people who take trolleys, right, myself included, capturing 100% of that share, what does that do? But I think I have to imagine, and this is now me sort of projecting a bit onto Brad's, if, if people saw Walker trolleys and were captivated by the quality of the product, more people might want to take trolleys where they wouldn't otherwise. Right. Because trolleys aren't the sexiest thing. Right? right. But when you see a high quality product like that and the functionality come together, you might be more likely to be invest in your in Walker trolley as your first push cart. So that that I would think would be the smart bet is to be the person who's sort of driving the, the growth of the category, not just trying to capture share. Yeah. Also, I love that he called out me basically by saying that every year during the NCAA, some tour player chimes in about how these kids should be carrying their bags because I 100% agree with that take. So I use a push cart now when I walk, probably more than carry. But if you're 19 years old, carry your damn bag. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> Listen, I almost outed you in the interview because I saw that tweet whenever the hell it was. It was a, it's been a while. Every year. It's every year. Every year you write that tweet. Okay. And at first I used to sort of nod my head. Now I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. But like I, like I think I, I mentioned in the interview with Scheffler, when I saw him doing it, I was like, all right, man, the, the, it's not just the, the guys with the bad backs and the team doing it. The top guys are doing it too. So it started, started catching on for me at them. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Scheffler because I had seen him and the push cart might have had something to do with this. I had seen him on TV during the NCAAs or maybe the U.S. Amateur. And I was like, yeah, that's the kid from Texas. He's good. Looks like just kind of a normal dude. First tour event he shows up to, whatever, five years ago. He's like 6'4". And I'm like, damn it, another kid who's 6'4 and probably 
flies it over the driving range. But maybe I just didn't see him as an athlete because he was using a push cart at 19 years old. It's possible. He also looks 45, so that's got something to do with it. Yeah. All right, Dan, any other bullet points you need to hit? No, I think that's it, Roberto. Just want to thank Brad for coming on. Super insightful and transparent conversation. Really interesting sneak peek in the uh, inner makings of a DTC company in golf. If you're interested in Walker Trolley after listening to the episode, check out their coupon code COURSERECORD20. That's COURSERECORD20 at walkertrolleys.com. All right. Catch you next week on our last DTC episode. Stay tuned.